Before I read our text today, I just, the song we sang, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, uh, might not be a song um, many of you are very familiar with. We have sang this um, before, but the reason I bring it up it just um, was not lost on me. The gentleman who wrote this song um, is, by the, is William Cowper. And William Cowper may not be someone that you are familiar with, uh, but William Cowper, uh, his pastor was John Newton, who wrote uh, Amazing Grace. And William Cowper, at one time in his life, was institutionalized in a mental hospital and suffered, he suffered with severe depression all of his life. He suffered in a lot of ways, and uh, this song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, was written by a man who was intimate with suffering. His life, all of his life, involved suffering, but yet William Cowper focused on the Lord, turned his heart to the Lord. He is a well-known poet, if you um, follow poetry. Um, but he is also a man who wrote much out of the burden and the suffering of his soul. Uh, and he allowed his faith to be that which carried him even through his suffering. And you can't sing this song, you can't read the words of this song if you know his story and see his theology of trust in God, not based on what he sees with his eyes, not based on what he feels in his heart, his mind, or his body, but faith in God based on what God's word declares and who God has shown himself to be. A God who loves so much that he gave his only begotten son. And William Cowper did not allow his suffering to overshadow that love of God. And he did not walk by sight. He walked by faith. And I don't know, I have just, that impressed me as we sang that song because I do know somewhat the story of William Cowper so I pray that you be encouraged by the words he wrote and the life that he lived. Amen. Our text today, James chapter 1, we're going to cover two verses. I know your bulletin said 21 through 27, but we won't make it through, 20, through 27. So we're going to do 21 and 22. James chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we ask that you would this morning... Open our hearts and open our minds, and by your Holy Spirit, teach us, lead us and guide us 
through your word, illuminate this word to us so that we would be a people transformed by the power of the gospel that has saved us, that we would be a people conformed to the very image of the Son of glory, that we would be a people, your church in the earth, that would give witness to those around us and even to powers and principalities that we would make known to them in heaven and on earth the manifold wisdom of God. Father, we thank you that you give us this privilege by your grace. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So in these two verses in James chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, I want you to notice that there is a a laying aside and there is a receiving that is taking place in this exhortation, in this beginning of James's letter that we're going through. And both the laying aside and the receiving are to lead the believer to a life of being doers of the word and not hearers only. For if we are hearers only, James says we deceive ourselves. Verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Let's look first at what James is conveying when he writes, therefore, lay aside. What does it mean to lay aside? Well, this phrase translated into English, or this word translated into English, translated lay aside, is used here as a metaphor for taking off or removing a garment, just as I might take off this sport coat and go lay it aside over there on that chair. That's literally the picture that's given here when James says lay aside. We are to be putting away or putting off the defiled garment and putting on a new one. We see the same word used in the same way by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, 12, where Paul exhorts the believer to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So cast off the works of darkness and then put on the armor of light. He uses the same word in the same metaphorical way in Colossians 3, 8, And in Ephesians 4.22 and verse 25. To indicate that we are to put off the works of the flesh of the old man. Just as we would put off a filthy garment. Paul helps us understand here what James is exhorting us to do. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 22 through 24. That you put off concerning your former conduct. The old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, 
which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. In Colossians, Paul gives us more detailed information concerning the things we are to be laying aside. James says, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Paul in Colossians 3, 8 through 10 says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So as we lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, we are to put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. That would be the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the image we are being conformed to. Therefore, we are to lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. We are to lay aside each and every dirty, filthy, or defiled thing. The metaphor used here is in keeping with the action James presents to us of putting off and laying aside a filthy, defiled garment. We are to lay aside or put off each and everything that is defiled, that is filthy, In other words, that is contrary to Christ. By his blood, by the blood of Christ, we are no longer counted as defiled, but we are made pure and holy in the sight of the Father. The word translated overflow here, used to describe an overflow of wickedness, is the same word translated abundance in Romans 5.17 to describe the abundance or overflow of grace and of the gift of righteousness that is to reign in the life, in our life, by Christ. So we're not to have an overflow of wickedness. We're to have an overflow of righteousness, of grace, of the gift of righteousness, That is what is to be overflowing and abundant in our life. It's also used in 2 Corinthians 8.2 to describe the abundance of joy or the overflow of joy amidst the trial of affliction. That sounds contrary. It sounds contradictory. But joy, the joy that we have in Christ is not dependent upon our circumstances. It's why William Cowper was able to write the songs and the hymns and the spiritual songs and the poetry that he wrote even in the midst of great suffering. He was able to find great joy in his Lord. There is to be no longer an overflow of wickedness, but the abounding fruit of the Spirit, overflowing from the abundance of grace and love God has poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. All filthiness and overflow of wickedness we are commanded to lay aside. That stands in contrast to the abundant and abounding fruit of the Spirit that is to to be brought forth in our lives. As believers. 
The fruit of the Spirit is contrasted with the works of the flesh in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Here is the great contrast between the overflow of wickedness we are to lay aside and the abounding righteousness of the new man we are to put on. The filthiness and overflow of wickedness we are to lay aside is succinctly described as the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. We can get a good idea, in other words, of what our life is not to look like from this description Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If we love our neighbors, we will make this truth known to them. In contrast to the works of the flesh we are to lay aside, Paul presents the fruit of the Spirit that is to abound in the life of the believer. We should understand that just as the fruit from a tree is not immediate, or automatic, the fruit of the Spirit made manifest in our life is a process that is overseen and brought about by the work of the Spirit in us. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians five twenty-two through 25. Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh are these, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk. In the Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life is highlighted by these nine characteristics. There are not nine fruits, there is only one fruit, it is the fruit of the Spirit. But that one fruit has nine characteristics that Paul lists here. And I would draw your attention to the fact that the very first one is love, meaning that if we don't have love, We don't have any of the other characteristics because all of the other characteristics really hinge on love. It's why Jesus said that a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Upon these two hang all the law and all the prophets. Upon what two? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. And the second, which is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So the defining characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And from that flows everything else. 
But it would do us well to pay attention to those nine characteristics that Paul lists there in his letter to the Galatians. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life is highlighted by these nine characteristics listed in these verses. Think about all things consistent with, as well as inconsistent with, these characteristics, and then think about what our life is to look like by God's grace. So when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, we don't just think about what our life is to look like, we can also understand what it's not to look like. Think about the thoughts and actions and lifestyles that are consistent or inconsistent with love, with joy, with peace, with long-suffering, with kindness, with goodness, with faithfulness, with gentleness, and with self-control. Consider those things and you will know more clearly what things you are to lay aside and what things you are to be putting on. God's Word reveals this truth for us The fruit of the Spirit is made manifest in our life as we receive with meekness the implanted Word. So James writes, and receive with meekness the implanted Word. Note the context here. We are literally laying aside our defiled garments and overflow of wickedness of sin. And as we do so, we are to receive with meekness the implanted Word. Now, we must be careful here not to think that James is describing someone or something that does not apply to us. We just looked at the contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And we can all see ourselves in that contrast. Having said that, in our modern thought and speech, descriptive words like Filthiness and overflow of wickedness are often reserved for sinful behaviors we would consider extreme or at least not applicable for good Christians, right? For example, we may be tempted to think that James is writing for the people that we encountered at the Pride event, not us people in church on Sunday morning. Careful what you assume. Thus lies the danger. Remember, James is writing for believers. He's writing to the church. Except for God's grace, we all are capable of worse than we may imagine. Every one of us needs a Savior. Every one of us. James is simply describing the resident sin we all deal with. And that we are all capable of. This exhortation we are given here, remember from last week, we're to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. The righteousness of God is to be produced and seen in every area of our life. The sin of man and the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We are to lay our sin aside and put on the new man in Christ with a mind that is being renewed to the truth. 
You might be a new creation, but you still have a carnal mind that needs to be being renewed every day to the truth of God. That is an ongoing process. It's what the Bible calls even under the saving of your soul, even under the saving of your mind, your will, and your emotions. That takes place as your mind is being renewed to the truth. So he says, and receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive. This is an exhortation to receive readily, to receive readily and to welcome readily with meekness the implanted word. How are we to receive the word? Readily, willingly. This is a beautiful picture of God's grace at work in the life of the believer who is choosing to faithfully obey God. In obedience, we put off our defiled garments of filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Receiving with meekness the implanted word pictures the seed that is sown in good soil. Remember the parable of the soils that Jesus gave? And the seed that was sowed in good soil brings forth a harvest, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. This is not a casual receiving, but a purposeful receiving leading to fruitfulness. To receive with meekness the implanted word is to receive the word in willing submission to God. That's what it means to receive with meekness. With meekness, the word meek. Or meekness is a much maligned word in our modern culture. We have lost the meaning and the virtue once associated with this word in days of antiquity. I want to read a kind of a long quote, but it's worth reading from the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology about meekness. And I quote, Late 20th century Western culture does not hold meekness to be a virtue. In contrast to the ancient Near East and Greco-Roman world, which placed a high premium on it, this dramatic shift in values is problematic for contemporary biblical translation. Most modern versions replace the noun meekness by gentleness or humility, largely as a result of the pejorative overtones of weakness and effeminacy now associated with meekness. These connotations were not always predominant in the word. If for ancient Near Eastern kings were not reluctant to describe themselves as meek in the same context in which they described themselves as mighty kings. What has prompted this discrepancy between the biblical and contemporary attitudes toward this virtue? There are two essential components for this quality to come into play in the Bible. A conflict in which an individual is unable to control, listen church, a conflict in which an individual is unable to control or influence circumstances. Ever been there? Have you ever had your circumstances out of your control, beyond your influence? This is a problem for us moderns. 
Typical human responses in such circumstances include frustration, bitterness, or anger. But the one who is guided by God's spirit accepts God's ability to direct events. Meekness is therefore an active and deliberate acceptance of undesirable circumstances that are wisely seen by the individual as only part of a larger picture. I would draw your attention back to the song we sang a bit earlier, written by William Cowper. It's a perfect example of what this article is talking about. Meekness is not a resignation to fate or passive and reluctant submission to events, for there is little virtue in such a response. Nevertheless, since the two responses, resignation and meekness, are externally often indistinguishable, it is easy to see how what was once perceived as a virtue has become a defect in contemporary society. The patient and hopeful endurance of undesirable circumstances identifies the person as externally vulnerable and weak, but inwardly resilient and strong. Meekness does not identify the weak, but more precisely, the strong who have been placed in a position of weakness where they persevere without giving up. Therefore, it is quite appropriate for all people, from the poor to ancient Near Eastern kings, to describe their submission to God by the term meek. Close quote. The Bible in Numbers 12, verse 3, describes Moses as a very meek man, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Moses was meek. He was not weak. Neither was Christ weak, and neither are we in Christ. That means we must know who we are in Christ. Or we will confuse meekness, which is a virtue we should all strive to possess, with weakness, which has nothing to do with meekness. In fact, they're opposed to one another because meekness speaks of strength, not weakness. One thing that is important in terms of meekness and the strength associated with it is knowing who you are in Christ. If your identity is wrapped up in who the world says you should be, a.k.a. your social media identity, when things are not consistent with the standards of the world, your own insecurity will drive you to resistance against God Instead of, resist, instead of resistance against your sin. When your identity is found in Christ 
And he who claims you and who he claims you to be, it will not be a matter of what the world says or thinks. It will be a matter of who Christ says that you are. Who the word declares you to be in Christ. There will be no need to present yourself in a way that appeases the godless standards of the world. Your identity, your authority, and your meekness in the grace of Christ will be and is sufficient. Therefore, we should understand very well that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is just the opposite. It is great strength in submission to God. To receive with meekness the implanted word is to receive his word in ready and willing submission to God and his divine plan and purpose. This is especially true in the midst of those things that are beyond our influence and beyond our control. The meek recognize and trust that God is Lord over all and in control of We are to receive with meekness the implanted word. The word translated here, implanted, is used only once in the New Testament. It's right here in this verse. If you have a King James version of the Bible, that word is translated engrafted. But the more accurate way to understand what James is writing here, what he's conveying to us, is this word implanted. This is the word of God that is divinely given, that is divinely sown and divinely implanted in our hearts by God's grace. This is not a picture of us acquiring the implanted word on our own through studying the Bible. That's not what James is talking about here. This pictures the divine action of God in his grace implanting his word in our hearts. And the implanted word, ingrown and rooted in our hearts, ultimately bears the mark of a transformed life through the fruit of the Spirit. It is true, we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God, but we should never fall under the illusion that it is our own mental capacities, our own human effort that ultimately brings about our spiritual growth. That increase comes only by the Spirit of God. God uses the means of our diligence in the Word and in spiritual disciplines, but it is God, not us, who brings the increase of the implanted Word. Like a seed sown in good soil by the diligent farmer, it is God in His grace who brings forth the increase of that seed. So it is with his implanted word received with meekness and rooted in our hearts. The Lord brings the increase. The implanted word is able to save your soul. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 7 that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But God who brings the increase. In 1 Corinthians 3, 9 he reminds us that we are God's field. In other words, it's not an increase of the field. It's not an increase of the dirt that God is looking for, but an increase of the life that's in that seed. It's an increase of the life of Christ. 
The implanted word rooted in our heart is to bring forth an increasing manifestation of Christ's life as seen in the fruit of the Spirit. Thus we are to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The implanted word is able to save your souls, James writes. You cannot save yourself. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is the gift he gives of his own good pleasure and will. No man can earn salvation. Jesus is the one man who was able to pay the price required for our salvation. Now in Christ, his salvation is freely given to those he chose before the foundation of the world. The question always comes, well, pastor, who's qualified to be chosen by God? And the answer is none. None are qualified. Not even one. Paul, quoting the Psalms, writes in his letter to the Romans that there is none righteous. No, not one. There are none who seek after God. There is none who does good. No, not one. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. So the scripture is clear. There is none, no, not one, who qualifies for salvation Apart from God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ, there is none who qualify to be saved. If none qualify, how is it that men may be saved then? Well, he alone may qualify us and he alone makes us accepted. It is by grace alone. God did not foresee our choosing him and then choose us. What God foresaw was our sin. He foresaw our sin and sent his son to save all those he had chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 verse 4. You are saved because he chose you while you were still dead in trespass and sin. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ is the living word implanted in our heart who alone is able to save our souls. The gospel is literally the good news of his word. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. As you believe, you are to lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And when you receive with meekness the implanted word, able to save your souls, you are not just to hear the word, but you are to be a doer of the word. And this is what James writes in verse 22. Laying aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, receiving with meekness the implanted word, able to save our souls, Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. You are not to only hear what the word commands, but you are to do what the word commands. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. James writes that if you are hearers only, you deceive yourselves. If you know that you are to lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but do not do that. You are hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Being a doer of the word 
is the fruit of faith. We're going to get to this later on as we continue through this letter. That works and faith are consistent with one another. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James is, in, James is implying that those who are hearers only are so because they will not do, not because they cannot hear. I want you to, I want you to hear this. He says deceiving yourselves. But what he is conveying here is if you can hear the word, if you're not doing what you hear the word commanding you to do, it's not because you can't hear, it's because you will not obey. The fact hearers only deceive themselves is not because they do not understand the word, but because they do not obey the word. If you have with meekness received the implanted word, that means you have received it knowing you are under submission to it. That's what meekness means, under submission to God. If you are under submission to God's word implanted and rooted in your heart, you will be a doer and not a hearer only. And if you are a doer of the word, you are not deceiving yourself, but submitting yourself to God and to, the, and to his word. And some may ask, what does it mean to be a doer of the word? My response would be, go to the word and find out. That's why we encourage you every week to participate in the Bible reading challenge. Go to the Word and find out what the Word is telling you, commanding you to do. This is not complicated. In fact, it's very simple. Even if obeying God's Word is not always easy, it's not because it's complicated. It's just that sometimes what God commands us to do is not easy for us to do. We can all grant that. But it's not because it's too complicated for, for us to understand what we are to do. Being a doer of the word may be simple in terms of what the word commands. Obeying that simple command may, in fact, be difficult for us to do. Not because we don't understand the command, but because we do not wish to obey the command. I mean, I'll confess to you right now. I fall into that category a lot. It's not that I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Sometimes I just don't want to do it. Sometimes it's not that I don't, it's not that I don't know what's good for me. Sometimes I just don't want to do what's good for me because what's not good for me is easier, more convenient. In, in my case, a lot of times it tastes a lot better because, you know, I'm a foodie. I'm a really sweet foodie, too, and that's the problem. My doctor says you're too sweet. So it's not that it's too complicated to understand. It's that sometimes we just don't want to obey. Simple obedience may, in fact, be difficult to carry out, but we are called to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And this is where God's grace comes in. His grace is sufficient. His grace helps us. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand for your charge.
Today is our mission meal, and so I'm going to charge you. We're going to uh, sing our doxology and have our benediction, and I'm going to pray for our meal, and then we'll all be dismissed to go next door and have lunch together. You are all welcome, and I pray you all stay and partake. The exhortation we find today in the letter James wrote to the church is to lay aside what defiles and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The point of that exhortation is that you be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that means salvation comes to you not because you earned it, not because you contributed anything to it. It is all gift. It is all grace. That is what grace, grace is, a gift from God. Faith is also a gift of God's grace. You have no faith until God makes you alive and gives to you a new heart with which you may trust him. The gift of faith is to produce the work of faith. Therefore, Living faith is marked by doers of the word and not hearers only. Man rejected God in the beginning when our first father Adam rebelled against his creator. You did not choose God from your nature of sin and death. He chose you. If you are trusting Jesus today, thank the Lord and be a doer of the word. If you are not trusting him, then obey his command and trust Jesus now as the only Savior. Know that as you trust Him, He chose you in Him and saved you to make you His very own in spite of your sin and rebellion. In His saving grace, be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. His grace, His great gift of salvation, should be motivation enough to live out your faith for His glory. Thus, the exhortation we find today in the letter James wrote to the church to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls and be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Let it be so in you and in his church. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray right now for our food and then we're going to sing the doxology. Father, I thank you for this gathering today. I I thank you for this assembly, and I thank you for the meal that we will have that is provided for us through your gracious provision and your kindness. Thank you for all that helped prepare this meal. Thank you for all that helped make this meal possible. Thank you for all that participate and join in the fellowship around this meal. May you be glorified even as we are uplifted in that fellowship. And let the food that we will partake of today be nourishment to our bodies to strengthen us for your service. Father, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Let us sing our thanks. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Yeah.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord be with you.